0: Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet risk takers, travelers, adventurers, investors, entrepreneurs, or simply mind bogglers. To find all the episodes of this show, please go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or go to judgmentcallpodcast.com. For more resources, including how to become a guest, how to advertise, and to see all the lectures, podcasts, and books I would like to would like you to listen to or read, please also go to our website at judgmentcallpodcast.com. Like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or like us and subscribe to us on YouTube. That will make it easier for other users like you to find us later on. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is also my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the best travel deals for you as they happen. We do that in economy, premium economy, business, and first class, and we screen 450,000 new airfare deals every day just for you and present the best based on your preferences. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% the airfare deals. In case you didn't know, Americans and Europeans can already travel to more than 80 different countries again, South America, in Africa, and in Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium for free, go to mightytravels.com mtp, if that's too much for you to type, just type in mtp4u.com, mtp4u.com. To start your 30-day free trial. I'm very excited today to be here with Jay Zhao. And Jay is an entrepreneur turned VC and is currently a, r- a partner of T-Fund, which is um, also called TCL Ventures. And uh, TCL is a big Chinese mainland corporation and uh, T-Fund is uh, a subsidiary. Of the company and makes venture investments worldwide. And uh, before that, Jay was a partner at Walden Ventures and uh, a principal at Granite Ventures, both are in the Silicon Valley. Welcome to the Judgment Call podcast. Jay, it's good to have you. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's absolutely. Be absolutely. We're very curious. Maybe you can uh, first shed a little bit more light on the current fund you're working with um, that you're running, T-Fund, um, and maybe give us an idea about TCL. And also, we want to know about what brought you to the dark side, so to speak, what brought you to venture capital, leaving entrepreneurship. Maybe you can give us some idea of your background.
1: Yeah, happy to do that. Um, so just to give you a new update. Um, so I'm, I'm now an advisor to T-Fund um, after starting T-Fund about two and a half years ago um sure. i'm actually uh, uh running my own fund um it's a side fund um it's just getting started right just like okay. a, a startup so it's congratulations called, thank you uh it's exciting uh, a really humbling journey uh, as well um it's really um about focusing on backing automation economy companies uh, the, the fund is called leonis capital and uh, okay. the idea is that we will be the first check writer to back um, ai first companies um, in both US and China. So uh, we don't really care where the company comes from, um, but we love to back um, global-minded founders uh, that fits along with the thesis. Um, and to give you, um, you know, like you said, right, I had the fortune to uh, start a um, venture fund like T-Fund um, that was backed by TCL, which is uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the largest consumer electronic company in the world. And the idea was really to um, invest in entrepreneurs in uh, China, in the US, and also in Israel. So quite ambitious goal. And we set it up, the entity, very similar to Google Ventures, where we combine the best of venture investing, uh, as well as corporate resource and insight uh, to helping those companies. Um, and we did good amount of investment in 2018 and 2019. And maybe we'll talk more about it uh, later on, but, you know, as you know, as the tech decoupling between U.S. and China, you know, get more uh, more advanced, right, over the past two years, um, the investment uh, just kind of getting harder to do. Um, uh, Having said that, you know, most investment that we did uh, in all those three regions have performed really well. Um, before that, I was uh, leading early stage investment in two venture fund. Uh, one is called Warden, and the other one is uh, Granite Ventures. Both are really well established fund. Um, I learned quite a lot. Um, one was uh, started in 1974, uh, along with Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins. So if you, want, if you want to learn like the classic and the, and the best way to practice venture, um, then you know you you can't find a better place to. Um, to the learn the craft from. So um, I built my experience and my track record at those two funds. Uh, some of the investments that uh, we did um, at those venture funds are companies. Um, I'm thinking about more consumer-driven companies. So we're investor, um, shareholder in Airbnb, and also uh, investor in Pandora um, and shareholder uh, early shareholder in Netflix um, as well. And then on top of that, obviously, we also invest in a lot of enterprise companies, successful en- enterprise companies, uh, like Anaplan, Maketa, um, to name a few. Uh, both of them are you know, in the range of $5 billion to $10 billion uh, market cap company now. Uh, but you know, most people recognize consumer brand uh, much easier than the enterprise companies. But for us, for Leonis Capital, we focus on both. Um, we might talk a little bit more about AI-driven companies um, in enterprise space and also in consumer space. Yeah, that's um, a really
0: good. That's a really good theme. Um, yeah. And I know you you recognize how much of a buzzword password it is right now. And, yeah. But there is there is a big theme in the market out there. And I I you know I'm a personal user and developer of AI, so I know what it can do. Uh, we had Stephen Schwartz on a couple of episodes ago, who's a statistics professor and was one of the first. Uh, Founders, I'd say, of an AI startup back in the, in the 80s, and he, he mm-hmm. gave us a, a very interesting view how this is partially just a hype, partially it is statistics, and partially there's something great going on, which I learned from David Orban last week, is really the way of acceleration with AI is way faster than Moore's law. So I feel we all have heard at least some buzzwords, and some of us uh, in the audience have played around with different AI mechanisms. Give us an idea what what your last fund, and I know that was already focused on AI. Give us an idea what kind of are you looking for? What's like the perfect startup that you would like to invest to right now? And if AI is still um, as much of a focus in your new fund, and if so, what does it mean using AI in the enterprise? Because when we think of AI, we think first of Google algorithms or Facebook algorithms or self driving cars, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yep. That's a good question. So AI is a really broad term, right? People kind of throw different meanings and different uh, their own understanding into the uh, into the term of AI. And uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a debate about you know whether AI is going to end humanity or not. Um, and I think that was uh, that was the emotion kind of mixed with uh, the typical movies that that we have seen in the past. But I think in reality. Uh, in terms of venture investment opportunity, uh, we're mostly talking about vertical AI. So uh, the AI AI driven or AI enabled applications for either consumer case or enterprise case. Um, I don't think it's a hype. I don't think um, it's a fad for sure, because uh, what we have done is that we have looked at tech evolution over the past, uh, let's say 40, 50 years. Every 10 years, you have a mega trend that's taking place so if you think about it you know in the 1980s uh, that's that was uh, i.t and infrastructure and then to the waiver wave, wave of, of of internet and then uh, we have cloud and then mobile um, and now what we believe at 2020 and going forward next 10 20 years is going to be ai driven uh, automation economy so, so those are the bigger mega trends uh, that we, we try to wrap our heads around, not only to identify the next iconic uh, companies, not just unicorn companies, the iconic company that will last 50, 100 years or even longer. Um, and those companies' creation are really um, strongly tied to the mega tech trend. Uh, and not only th- not only that, right? If you think about um, the creation of venture capital fund, it's the same thing. You cannot create the time, we talk about like timing for entrepreneurs, for companies, you have to ride the, the, the perfect wave or you, you have to be at the right place at the right time. Same idea with venture capital fund. Um, Sequoia was started when the whole wave of IT infrastructure and PC uh, was just around the corner, right? And uh, they were backing, in the early stage of venture capital, were backing a lot of, of uh, semiconductor companies, the infrastructure type, type of companies. Um, but, you know, for the one that did well, um, that kind of, accum- you, you kind of gain your reputation and gain your uh, first step of success by making those uh, investments based on the trend. And then later on, you know, you have new, a new, uh, newer and younger um, uh, venture fund that's better identified. Uh, uh, tech trend like internet, like mobile, and like cloud. Um, So similarly, uh, with AI-first companies and automation economy companies, it actually calls for a different type of uh, investors, um, maybe more nimble, um, maybe uh, have a different pattern recognition uh, for those companies to to thrive. So to answer your question, um, you ask what are the type of companies that we're excited about? Um, You know, we can kind of go in very depth about it because we wrote a whole thesis about, you know, this investment opportunity and why we started uh, Leonis Capital. But to sum it up, you know, we are excited about uh, AI-first companies um, to solve really specific problems in real industries. So, for example, um, how do you use AI uh, to solve um, the the inefficiency problem or increase inefficiency, uh, increase efficiency? Uh, in front of a manufacturer setting, all for healthcare setting, all for uh, payment and fintech. Um, so those are the day-to-day life uh, what we call the real economy in people's day-to-day life. Um, but with uh, AI 1st approach, you're not just talking about you know the digitalization of a cloud software, you know, kind of just kind of uh, put your data from offline to online, but instead we're seeing the trend of big or small companies, migrating and, and trying to strategize in what how can we better utilize the data not for just business inside but actually for real action uh uh you know for uh either for software de- delivery or for people's uh, user experience um uh from the consumer side
0: so i i really like what you just said and and i think it is very honest of you because it kind of is rare for venture capitalists to admit that they're actually trend followers, right? They need to see and identify a trend, but also they need to figure out who is going to make this trend even bigger. This could be the public markets, it could be other follow-on investors. So that's something that a lot of um, venture capitalists don't really want to talk about. Um, but but going back, going back, and I hope i interpreting you correctly here, but going back to AI, um, a lot of people might not be familiar with the relatively broad scope that we just talked about. Once you look back into the investments you did in the last two or three years, what is the, the portfolio mm-hmm. company from the last two or three years that you are most excited about or where things kind of worked out exactly like you wanted them to be?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really, <laughs> a really tough call, right? So um, the beauty of early stage investing is that um, the delta could be the performance delta could be really high um, that's when you hear about you know the, the return of 10x and 100x and even more um, because you were able to take the risk early on and therefore you're a meaningful partner to to the to the founders um, but at the same time that's a scary thing because a lot of things could change and you have to deal with a lot of unknowns um, One company that kind of came to mind. Um, it's really uh, about backing the founder um, at the early stage. Um, it's a company called Sleeper, uh, S-L-E-E-P-E-R. So they are the number one leader in the fantasy sports space. So if you're a uh, sports fan or you love uh, play uh, fantasy sports with your friends, um, they're really the number one app um, out there. So what they have built is not only a really slick app, but um, if you think about the type of founder that we like, the one with global perspective and global minded, uh, they started a the company about four years ago, uh, three or four years ago. So with the idea that if you look in the U.S., uh, we have a lot more consumer app that's single purpose focus, right? You go to Yelp for you know business like uh, rating review, and then you go to uh, Facebook uh, for the social content. And then you go to a messaging app or WhatsApp for text messaging. But then if you look at China, uh, WeChat is one of those very successful and widely adopted uh, super app out there. So when Slipper, they have their idea about building a super app for sports fans uh, in a place that you can consume content, uh, you can uh, play games, you can message with other people, uh, and you can even... Uh, you know, kind of gifting, uh, do the virtual gifts uh, with your friends. It, it's it's not a new, it's not a, a kind of a, a, a. Well, I would say it's kind of like novel concept, uh, you know, to the very least. To do a lot of uh, investor in the valley, um, but to me, uh, I think it makes sense, right? Because if you compare the consumer behavior in both countries, uh, some are different, but a lot, a lot are the same. Uh, that the key is that can you build. And execute a well-crafted product around that thesis. So um, for that company, um, I was uh, lucky enough to be able to bond with the team, and um, you know, wrote the first personal check, and then on board asset advisor. Right now, they uh, they raised a B round from well-established firm like Andreessen and General Catalyst. So both are big funds, manage like two billion dollars uh, asset under management. Um, so it's quite a quite a right, you know from where they were to to where they are now., uh, but at the beginning it was not that easy. Like after you know we invested in the company, um, then they had the difficulty in terms of how to how to sustain the user growth and how to keep engaging users in the in the, uh, in a scalable and efficient way. Uh, and to the points that you know uh, I think there was it was a confusion period that we don't know where the product direction would be and will get involved going forward. Um, so that's really, you know, when you hear about early stage ventures um, and investors talk about early stage investments, um, it's really just about the team. Uh, Nan, Weishi, and Ken, uh, they're the type of founders uh, that demonstrate that they have, a, you know, conviction about the idea uh, to the degree that, at, before they raise any capital, uh, they're just really working around the garage like you talk about Silicon Valley companies, but they really work on the garage, sleep on the couch, and uh, just nothing will kind of dissuade them um, to not pursuing a sleeper. So to me, um, that was a good sign. Uh, that That's one of the best quality that you can look for in early stage founders. Um, and if you ask me, like, if, if you go to sleeper.com, like they do uh, a lot of different things now, including, um, Allowing people to play game, uh, uh, fantasy sports game around esports. That's something I didn't anticipate, right, when we uh, invest in the company. But um,
0: yeah, I I like how you described this as a partnership. It's something that you did together with the entrepreneurs. You know, I've been raising money the last twenty years. I have like a dozen startups that I've been involved in. Most of them on the operational side. And I always found that you get the typical VC pitches, like we're going to be your partner, we're going to open up the doors, we're going to give you follow-up funding. And uh, once the trend um, changes, and it always changes, as you just described, every company goes through these pivots usually. And what usually happens is that they they give you a year and then if your numbers don't look um, very explosive, they typically um, either replace you, um, they cut off your funding, they don't give you follow-up funding. This is often a problem that you get a very different pitch um, from the initial investors and often what they do in the end is uh, transform into someone who is both you know, very not as personal, um, often very arrogant, it seems to be an occupational hazard in the VC industry, uh, not very open to your ideas anymore and uh, um, obviously, if your startup rises very well, then these attitudes change. What I'm trying to say is there isn't really a partnership, is, and maybe this is a good thing. It's really based on what happens within 12 to 18 months as a startup. If it really explodes, you're going to be invited to all the parties. If it's one of their 95% that doesn't really explode, and maybe it's growing, but it's not really within that vector that a VC was, was looking for. Maybe the best you can hope for is a referral to a company that buys you. So I always feel like the, the VC reputation and the, the actual, especially if you go further in the, in the later funding rounds, is slightly different um, in reality. And I know you trying to establish a different um, personality of a VC. Do you think you can keep that up or is it something that everyone starts out humble and curious, and wants to make a decent amount of money, the first billion is in, they become arrogant and far off and uh, very difficult to talk to.
1: Yeah, so this is, this is a very good question. And, uh, and obviously I've been thinking about, um, about it a lot. Um, so uh, one of the things, uh, well, perspective that I have is um, uh, I, was, uh, I was an entrepreneur myself before turning to VC. So I know how difficult it was to raise capital and how difficult it was to face a lot of rejections. And even if you get the funding, you still have to go through the roller coaster ride uh, with the up and down. Um, so with that type of uh, experience, um, it's truly it's really either you have the experience or you don't, right, and that's what enable you to build that empathy and the connection with the founder at early stage. So I will kind of break down your question in two parts. One is um, uh, at a high level, right, and I, I do think um, there is a disconnection between um, what VC, uh, just in general, like has put in front of themselves, like you know, uh, as a face, right? Many VCs call themselves founder friendly, and um, you know, kind of uh, will align with you, you know, kind of do everything that they can to get the allocation that they need, that they need, okay, into the deal, and then afterwards, you know, things kind of evolve, things change. Um, I think that has been the practice over the past five, five, uh, five to eight years, roughly, when capital is more abundant than the high quality of deals. But um, I do think it's important to recognize the interest between founder and venture fund are not completely aligned. Um, that us just talk about that, right? Because uh, what, for example, what could be a life-changing exit or event? Uh, of exit, let's say $10 million or $20 million, that could be life-changing to an entrepreneurs you know, start his, his or her first company. But then that, that might not be meaningful to a billion dollar venture fund because you're not driving the type of return they're looking for, so they really don't care. right? They would rather have the optionality for you to go big or go home than to have that small realization of exits. Um, and I think oftentimes, you know, either founders they don't want to recognize that because they would rather to uh, they would rather uh, kind of prioritize the um, the brand name of the firm, the, the 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 high number of the fund size over what's really aligned, you know, under the hood. Um, I'm not saying you should go either way. You should go with big fund uh, and then you you should go with a small fund. It's just each uh, each fund, uh, their fund size kind of dictate. Their interest uh, alignment with you and the type of goal that you're trying to achieve.
0: That's for sure, yeah. Jay. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm totally with you there. Um, yeah. And I think entrepreneurs have learned that lesson. Um, yeah. That's obviously a disconnect. But I mean, people who don't realize this as an entrepreneur, they're idiots, if you, if you ask me. They don't know what mm-hmm. they're doing, right? I mean, there needs to be a certain professionalism, even to entrepreneurs, even if you talk about 18 year olds. So I mean that that is obviously true. If you if you take money at a hundred million dollar valuation, then um, 150 million dollars is not a great exit. 50 million is losing money. So I think entrepreneurs understand that. That if they kind of make the deal with the devil and go with the with the big fund raise on a high valuation, maybe actually too high, um, they do have to shoot for an extremely high exit relatively quickly. Well, that's dependable with, at least um, within the fund running time. So, I think entrepreneurs are not that, but I still feel the, the the general pitch of a partnership is kind of rare. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I'd say it's a 90% marketing and 10% real from my point of view. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe the entrepreneurs lie and they do lie all the time. I, I'm fully with you. I mean, the entrepreneurs lie all the time and the VCs lie all the time. So, I'm just focusing on VCs now.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, I hear you. I, I think the, the point that you're trying to make is that, you know, how much is a real service and real value add? Versus just you know marketing and, and lip service, right? That's being delivered yeah. to to the entrepreneurs, and I think that's a good point. Um, you know, for my own personal experience, uh, I have spent time uh, at two different venture fund that was well established, and co founding one venture platform at T Fund, and now fully starting my own. Um, and and for a period of time, I actually was really obsessed with the whole formation and foundation of venture capital fund or venture capital firm because if you think about it not many venture capital fund, uh, firm can sustain as long as um, you know Walden as long as Sequoia as long as Kleiner Perkins um and obviously Sequoia is the is, is the one that's kind of not only sustained long but also they've been the number one for so many so many years so what's the secret between that and many other venture funds that were starting from one and then quickly become irrelevant in year five or year 10, right? So that was an interesting question to me. So um, one of the questions and one of the reasons being, uh, well, there's multiple reasons, but one of the reason uh, at high level is that uh, for a venture fund that's not able to sustain because if you think about venture fund like a product, like a startup, you're not delivering value to the end customers. You might be able to get away with it, you know, for the fund one, which usually lasts five to 10 years, but, if you're not delivering value to them, uh, then just like companies, you're not serving a market, and then you become quickly uh, irrelevant. So the way that you think about this is that you know what's needed for a company's uh, 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 entrepreneur's journey, right? So you have different phases, you know, from pre-seed to seed to Series A, Series B, and going beyond. So for us, um, and for for the stage I'm passionate about it's really the early stage. So you're talking about seed and uh, Series A. So for these stage of companies, um, we the bonding is super important. We I, we're not interested in doing the brain surgery of replace, uh, replacing founders because if you are thinking about that, just even one thought at that early stage, then you might not as well just not partner uh, with that company, right? So that's not uh, that's not what you should should be uh, focusing on. Um, but what you really want to do, and the value add for that stage is that one, can you? see eye to eye with that founder uh, at a personal, not just at business, ne- business level, obviously you're doing business together, but at the personal level, like, is your value aligned? The way I think about it is, is that, you know, and I often tell this to entrepreneurs, that when you raise capital at early stage, you're not just taking check, but instead you're actually looking for a co-founder, right? Uh, except that it just happened to be this co-founder is going to bring you know, a good amount of capital uh, with him or her. Um, so you really want to make sure that value uh, and the vision is is really much aligned. Now going forward, if you raise Series B and beyond, then you might not need the advice and service from that early stage co-founder, which is totally fine. You know, as you as you scale up, so that's one thing um, you really want to do. And the second thing is that how can the early stage investor be value adding to you to find, in helping you find the 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 first batch of customers. And how how can he or her um, really uh, uh, really really make the business going uh, kind of get off the ground uh, really quickly? So that often means a lot more uh, you know customer introductions. So for us, we actually have the Cxo and advisory board um, that's purpose purposefully construct to help um, a company that we invest uh, in terms of accelerating their go-to-market uh, and then setting up POCs. Um, so you will see many venture funds talk about it, but few of them will actually set up a program and the structure to, uh, to be embedded in the venture platform that you do uh, to support entrepreneurs. But frankly, it's too early to tell, you know, we'll see. You know, like right now, it's, uh, we're, we're a startup ourselves. We kind of uh, um, put out our product roadmap out there. Uh, there is a lot, more, a lot more work for us to do. You know, we're gonna deliver the results. So ask me that question five years later. And, and hopefully I can give you a better answer.
0: I mean I admire your approach. I think it's it's a really good one. I also like Daniel Gross's approach, you know his accelerator, mm-hmm. making everything remote and um, basically he, he I think he's taking it maybe a little far. He's, he's basically making entrepreneurship a basic algorithm. So you basically don't interact on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're just looking at numbers and it's fully remote right you never have to talk to anyone. You, you you basically assume you can you're being defrauded anyways, but you you're, you're making it up in numbers. So I, I like this approach in terms of basic innovation. Uh, I think it's it's very hard to pull off on, at scale. It's definitely very and he's funded by Mark Andreessen and by Stripe, so they see this as a great way to try it out and, and nurture a different ecosystem. But I heard you talk about that before that as a as a VC you need to be part historian, part biologist, and I would say you will also have to be a philosopher, um, like you have to identify these big trends and then um, put them into abstract rules that you can follow, so-called first principles. So you don't have to start from scratch all the time. And I also feel you just said that it, there's a lot of psychology involved. You know? It's been like a, like a dating app. Are you you got to find out, are you on a, on a platonic level? And that's obviously different, but are you able to deal with that person for the next five years and have board meetings, have Zoom calls all the time? or will you be annoyed after six months and then you know it's really not worth it it's not worth your time i'm always i'm, I'm struggling with this because in, in my personal experience often the most annoying people that i knew because they were so annoying and socially awkward and like really abrasive they delivered a lot of good returns because basically no one else would talk to them because everyone tried to avoid them but like this was their social motivation to really excel at their job so sometimes i feel the clicking with someone is not necessarily the person that will be the most successful. Um, but you know, I have trouble making that judgment. Obviously, um, a lot of times myself.
1: Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. So the the part that we're trying to so this kind of tied to your uh, to your previous question is how do we um, evaluate early stage company when there are so many uncertainties, and what are we looking for in terms of early stage companies? Um, the part that the team is obviously important. So um, I agree. I mean, a lot of tech founders um, they they're really good at the technology and the product they build, but not all of them has the kind of uh, the you know what would you call the salesman uh, type of personality uh, that's super sociable and very easy to you know get along with. And uh, you know, if you think about like the uh, you know the, the you know book Steve Jobs, right? At the earliest of his career, uh, he didn't have a good, you know, easy time fundraising because his personality was just very hard to get along with. So I think for us, like the lesson for me, certainly the takeaway lesson is that you really have to lower your ego. So it's not about you get along with that person um, uh, at, at a level that satisfy your ego. Um, and frankly, you know, uh, from the position of writing checks, a lot of people will, will want to say what you would like to hear um, instead, of, instead of the truth, right? So, so that's a part that you really need to um, pay attention to. Um, so there's a phrase that you know, I, I think is really appropriate in investing world, uh, which is you know, just observe the presence. So observe the presence, meaning you have to listen and you have to listen hard. Um, that's why you have two years and one month, right? So you, you want to listen to what the other person have to say and, uh, and to, to evaluate whether there is some truth in it or not. But the other part, um, I would say, um, early stage is about founders, but founder doesn't uh, make up the whole equation. So the other part is the, is the market, the market sizing. Um, and that come from an independent, uh, rather independent point of view. Uh, how do you think the market will evolve, and how big the market size is? And that's kind of when we think about venture investing. And the one of the reason I named the fund Lilan's Capital, you know, Lilan's kind of represent the you know the star constellation, right? And uh, it's bright and it's long lasting. But more importantly, it, it's a it's a component of nature. So that's how we think about different things that going on in business world, especially in Startup and incumbent, their competition. Um, a lot of it can kind of represent to, uh, you know, what we have learned from ecology, biology. Very similar uh, in terms of how the in the animal world people compete. or well, in animal world, animals compete. Animals um, can thrive. The new when the new species you know come along, they pre- present a different dynamic uh, to the ecosystem. So the same thing, you know, when we think about marketplace. Sorry when we think about the big market or emerging market, we really want to understand how the dynamic uh play into fact and if that founder's point of view makes sense on that. So that's how um that's you know it's really case by case, but that's kind of like general framework that we use when we evaluate early stage companies.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's very good. And that kind of is a nice way to to lead into another set of questions I have for you. Hmm. you know there is peter field's um thesis that you're probably very familiar with about the uh, the big stagnation that we have since the 70s basically what he talks about and that seems to accelerate in the wrong way we have hmm. a low productivity growth um, which uh, leads to low gdp growth and um, it's not really clear where that came from um but why it was so much higher in the period after the second world War? there's a couple of hypotheses like People coming back from the war, being exposed to technology, then there wasn't really an infrastructure to, to settle, be settled into, um, and so they started companies, and these companies had huge productivity jumps. Um, the and there's, there was a lot of basic research done, obviously during the Second World War, in order to make weapons. Um, so there's a lot of lot of ideas that float around, and, and nobody really seems to have a good answer um, why this happened. And there is, I talked to um, a couple of prior guests, and we what would we what we some of them are really excited about is that AI alone might add 10, 15 trillion, almost doubling the GDP um, of the US in the next t- uh, 10 years. Because what what AI has the potential to do is basically free us of anything that's slightly repetitive. but extremely good decisions, and anything that comes along, businesses, outside businesses, anything we do, we we basically have an AI that makes good decisions for us. So our first question is, what do you what do you what is your gut feeling about the big stagnation? Is it just like Something people yammer about, but it's actually nothing to worry about? And second, do you think AI is going to be that key component to get us to the singularity, of what Ray Kurzweil described? And this is going to be the most driving factor.
1: So I kind of agree with what you said. Um, so I don't think we should worry too much about it. Um, that's a, um, you know, when we look at the worldview, it really depends on how much you zoom in and how much you zoom out, right? So if you zoom out by, let's say, 10, 20 years or like 40, 50 years, then yes, there seems to be, um, you know, kind of this plateau of productivity after World War II, and we kind of hit this um, this space um, of the growth. But if you zoom out like, even further in the time scope of 100 and even 1,000 years, that you can see each time human beings, like uh, our productivity, productivity growth is highly associated with two things. One is the information breakthrough, and two um, is energy breaks, breakthrough. So uh, one of the more recent examples, obviously, is industrial revolution, right? So when we have the machine can replace a lot of manual work uh, in the manufacturing setting, then you see a huge uh, unleash of value creation um, in most of the developed world. Um, and then kind of going forward to where we're now, uh, I mean, I think people kind of uh, uh, kind of underestimate how much the internet, uh, the the, the value of the internet really created for our society. So people joke that, you know, we, uh, what's the word? Uh, We're hoping for a flying car, but instead we've got 140 characters, right? But true, I mean, I think both things, um, uh, it's it's not Apple to Apple comparison, but at the same time, you know, if you have any tool, any type of social network can uh, facilitate the efficiency of information exchange—that's um, productivity. I mean, that helps human society as a whole to uh, to be more productive um, at, at at the uh, at the holistic level. So let's not discount that. So, just on the information piece, uh, I think going forward we'll have a lot more information, uh, a lot more innovation um, in the next 10, 20 years. But to your question about <laughs> about AI, um, as we Ah uh, discussed previously. Before I think a lot of uh, exciting things come from the vertical AI. So initially, uh, when I say initially, we're talking about like you know ten years, twenty years type of a uh, time frame. Initially, a lot more companies will be vertical focused AI companies. So you are less likely, less likely to see kind of Google uh, of AI or AI first type of Google um, that solve every every problem. Uh, That's just being super horizontal. Uh, But instead, you're going to see who is the AI leader in the fintech space? Who is the AI leader in the healthcare space? And who is the AI leader in the digital media space? And in terms of digital media, we kind of already have one that we can look at and we can start to evaluate some early data, right? And that company is ByteDance. So ByteDance, they're really good at uh, distributing content and distributing information. So what that does is that instead of, uh, and that's just hugely disruptive to a lot of industries, not just um, not just you know a music app, but to Google, the search engine, to Google, and also to Alibaba, to e-commerce. The reason being, uh, the old way, you know, when I say old, it's actually not that old, right? Five years ago, uh, ten years ago, you know, people are searching information by thinking about what I want, and then you kind of go to a website or go to phone and then type something in Google and, and search something. So that's human look for information. So what TikTok or uh, ByteDance has done is reverse that equation and become information look for human, right? So we kind of, the algorithm kind of know what type of information that you want or you, or you need, um and and, the, and and kind of predict like at what time you're logging to the app, usually at eleven PM or usually at ten AM, then it knows that what type of information you want, you want to see. So it kind of pushed the information to you. It kind of reversed that uh, that equation uh, from human look for information to information look for human. And simple as that, it's just super powerful. So um and the other point I will make quickly is that one thing that we have never seen about AI companies is that because um, uh, unlike the, 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 the software company, unlike the cloud companies, because the data advantage, uh, it's super critical to these AI-first companies, uh, the ability to acquire those data uh, in a proprietary way and a cost-effective way is gonna be the key to make or break uh, the next iconic AI companies, or AI-first companies. Um, and at the same time, because of that component, you're able to uh, accumulate value in a much faster uh, speed and scale, and that's what I meant, you know, in the blog post that I uh, that I wrote uh, a few months ago um, about, you know, uh, what what does it mean uh, when we talk about AI-first companies? So what that means is that, you know, if you look at ByteDance, if you look at, you know, UiPath, and uh, you know, companies like SenseTime, all these companies get to the scale of 10 billion to 100 billion. In the relatively short amount of time, for the very reason that, like network effect, like uh, the typical kind of marketplace network effect that we have observed in Facebook, in Uber, and in you know, many other companies that we have seen in the last uh, tech trend, these AI companies have the data advantage, and just like snowball, it's going to get uh, growing bigger, uh, but only going to be more aggressive uh, in terms of growing the value in a in, in a much faster speed. So that's something that we're pretty excited about, um, and that's why you know when we think about like funding the next companies, uh, the, the 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 successful investments, it's not just about unicorn. You know we want to back the next iconic company that will get to the trillion dollar valuation um, one day um, and over the next. Yeah, 10, that's
0: a that's a really tall order. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm surprised to use it, that the TikTok example, because it uses um, an advanced way, advanced, but in the essence, a collaborative filtering that has been around since the 2000 with the Amazon and that Netflix has been um, having you know, ch- their challenge. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, there's, uh, there's parts of unsupervised learning in it and part of supervised. So there is on in a, in a core algorithmic basis, this has been around for at least a decade. And I, I fully agree with you, it hasn't been applied in that sense. Instagram and Twitter, they kind of played with it, but they never really got into it. They, they stuck to this follower concept and TikTok just basically changed it. But I think what, what everyone is surprised about in the entrepreneurial community is not necessarily the algorithm, but the scale they pull it off. It's clearly the, the, the way of viral content and the initial seeds they could afford. I mean, you have to buy those seeds, but then the viral, um, take up of that has been um, pretty astonishing and it's so impossible to, to predict this from my point of view you probably have better data if something will take off virally at some point and if so and how big it will it get that, that's really really complicated um, to predict I, I have no no predictive model for this and maybe we, we find an AI that has a predictive model for this one day maybe it's just the nodes um, in the network that you have to address um, mm-hmm. I want to move a little bit further into into because ByteDance is, is a very unique entity, and maybe you know more of the backstory. Driven by um, some relationship to to Chinese um, state-run companies, and I know ByteDance itself is probably not state-run. What is the impact of um, the state-run approval in China typically for for startups? And if you would go, say, you would go to Shanghai or Beijing. What kind of company would you start, and what are the reasons why it would work better in China than it does in the U.S.?
1: Right. Um, so um, let me try to unpack that a little bit. So, sure. in terms of the content, um, you know, I think um, different countries have different reg- regulation in terms of what contents are allowed within its own uh, its own um, its own law in its own territory so uh so that part you know it's yeah donald it's, trump it, is not allowed
0: anymore in the us
1: right so so it's so, changed so, quickly yeah yeah so so exactly so so as an investor frankly um we are mindful of the regulation and we think uh companies you operate in that certain market then you're obliged to comply with the law so you can disagree with the law and that's a different issue but from the capitalist standpoint of view uh, that's how you uh, you know that's how the game is set up. That's how you uh, how you run your business. So um, so there's no question about that about that uh, about that piece. So um, the second piece is about the the startup opportunity and the uh, the, the exciting opportunity in China uh, that might not be the same uh, dynamic in the U.S. So I would say two things. So one, um, I think most people, especially especially my, my peers uh, on the investment uh, investment side in the U.S. Uh, kind of uh, not fully appreciate or not fully understanding what's going on in China in terms of how fast the technology has been evolving and how aggressive the government has been pushing for the upgrade of uh, a lot of vertical industries that we have talked about. Um, So I will give you like some quick example. So at T-Fund, we were funding a lot of the um, manufacturing, uh, what we call the smart manufacturing or manufacturing automation um, uh, uh, robotic companies. So these companies, they are US companies, some are Israeli companies, some are Chinese companies. So we have the fortune to see uh, the same investment thesis um, in three major ecosystems and how they play out. And the one thing kind of surprised to me, um, uh, kind of uh, when you actually have the front row C to see what's unfolding, is that the customer adoption speed and the willingness to try new things uh, are actually much uh, bigger. The number of customers much bigger and the speeds much faster in China than what we have uh, here in the U.S. So they just talk about like, so maybe it's just, you know, U.S. economy and Chinese economy is just at different face. I mean, U.S. is more service driven and it's, uh, it's at different kind of level um, compared and different nature compared with, uh, uh, with, with Chinese economies. But at the same time, uh, you know if we think about you know two sides of uh government's uh, push for technology upgrade you know when uh I mean before Trump right there was a whole talk about um you know you uh, really leveraging technology to be positioned u s as the leader over the next you know twenty thirty years um now you know with Trump you know things kind of changed uh quite a bit right over the past four years, but with China the thing you know put- pol- putting politics aside. With China, that has been quite consistent. I mean, over the past ten years, uh, everybody knows like where the country's priority is, and the government is pushing the private company, either private company, or the state-run company, to upgrade their um, their software technology and hardware technology to be more efficient. I mean, there is more reason, you know, behind that, right? You know, as China' uh, economy is upgrading from export-driven to internal consumption-driven. It's just an inevitable step that you have to take. Um, but it's amazing to see, you know, how uh, over the past like five, 10 years, um, you know, China definitely progressed quite a lot uh, on the industrial side. Um, so so that's Yeah, kind I, of find is, I find history. this really
0: fascinating. So I grew up in a communist country in Eastern Germany and um, I didn't think it was a lot of fun. It, it was kind of depressing, but I think what, what China has figured out and that's, that's really- um, that's really interesting to me, and that's where I'm very hopeful about that. Is they, they have this virtuous circle of, of a state direction, which is almost bigger in a almost always bigger in a communist or somewhat communist country, um, even if that label obviously has many, many different meanings. The the, the virtuous cycle of taking a lot of money from um, save it, from Chinese savers, putting it back into um technology. But also into basic infrastructure. So the, the the amount of money that was sunk into infrastructure is way beyond the level of a developing country with the same income um, level, and that is a great thing, right? If you pour so much money into infrastructure, yes, a lot of money might be wasted. But in the end, that pays off because the citizens become more productive. Once they're more productive, they make more money. They pay more taxes, and you make more money. So, and I know you're a big fan of Dalio, and I think people have overlooked this quite a bit, is how well this worked out for China because it has a, start, a stronger state um, complex. But once it goes into the right direction, you kind of end up more as Singapore is with their autocratic government. Um, mm. But that has pushed people in the right direction, at least for now. That might be over now, who knows? And the U.S. on the other side is at the end of their cycle with a lot of debt and what, what surprised me the most is you know, the COVID response that we've seen in the U.S. and in China, and the news came out today that China seemingly, we never know if these statistics are real, uh, barely had any GDP contraction. What that makes for me, and I, I've traveled a lot to China, and I've seen how it changed over the years, and I went to second-tier, third-tier cities that are you know still 10 million people yeah. cities, uh, yeah. but I've seen them change over the years. What I find interesting is that, to in many places, and this is not true probably for the service industry, not if you, I don't know, create a new brand in the service industry, but for a lot of industries, a lot of places, I actually feel China is now, ironically, more common sense, more down to earth, um, more entrepreneurial than many places in the US, like the Bay Area public officials, are extremely hostile to technology. And so, it's, you know, a lot of states, a lot of cities are extremely hostile, and that's driven by their voters against technology and anything that has to do with entrepreneurship um, which i find very surprising um, the way i grew up and i think we, we have this the, the entrepreneurial mindset is still it's very strong in eastern europe you know people who went through this experience it's very strong now in china so there's a lot of areas that that came up where if you would have asked me 10 years ago i would have never predicted this
1: yeah i, I well i think now maybe i'm an <laughs> idiot right you're the expert <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I think it's hard for anybody to predict, right? I mean, I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, over the past, like since what, since 1990s to, to now, like it's near 30 years, 30 years China has lived like billions of people out of property, um, property and, um, you know, has developed amazing uh, technology domestically and some kind of even going abroad. And, you know, to the point that you talk about is the infrastructure piece. The high-speed uh, railway um, the speed of deployment is just frankly amazing i mean i read i probably read the same article that you were reading this morning like the lens of um, uh, of high-speed railway uh, in china can make across the u.s from east coast to west coast seven times so that's kind of i wish we had that in the u.s you know wouldn't that be amazing you know if everybody don't have to drive everywhere and just take the high-speed train. Um, and so that you can make business meetings more productive and faster, and you can see your family and relatives easier. Um, so that's a good thing. I, I wish, you know, in the US, you know, we have that, and we can, you know, make those happen uh, a lot faster. Um, at the same time, you know, I think um, it, it's, if you ask me, like, I, I'm i kind of uh, in the middle in a way. You know, I was born in China I came to the U.S., uh, you know, for school, and later kind of immigrate, uh, immigrated here uh, as a U.S. citizen. So um, I still have family in China. So in a way, I kind of see both sides' point of view, um, and a, and a lot of times uh, I can understand you know both sides framework and, and the viewpoint of the world. Um, and unfortunately, you know, um, just like the cultural um, adjustment right? When I first came to the US, the cultural adjustment, cultural shock that I first experienced. And I think uh, a lot of times when a media and the top level people talk about the other side, there is a cultural misunderstanding and there's cultural mis- uh, just miscommunication here and there. Um, I don't know, you know, how that will be uh, solved, or uh, uh, if anyway, but for the work that we do, uh, at least, you know, um, you know, I hope that we can foster more innovation and in startup in both countries because more activity, more business activity is always a good thing uh, for both countries. And when you have that, you kind of advance the understanding, um, you know, one little step at a time. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the hope uh, and a little bit higher purpose uh, what we do, uh, in, in, in terms of what we do in terms of what we want to achieve.
0: Yeah, I think the, the frustration on the U.S. side is something where you feel we we, we we helped China to, to to create this economy. Well, you know, you you can say this is all bullshit, and China would have figured this out on their own. Who knows, maybe, yeah. But I think the hope in a lot of um, officials in the US, I don't think this is shared necessarily by the broader public, is that there was this hope, you know, once the economy gets going, China is going to look, not just look like Taiwan, it's going to be like Taiwan. And that was going to be hope that people had. And that didn't really work out so well. Um, and maybe that's very understandable. Um, and I think this is what on a, on, a, on a broader basis really is now creating this uncertainty what, what's going to happen if this goes on because China is, is probably more entrepreneurial as we just said and more business-minded and once this keeps going um, and I, I don't think the catalyst will stop in the next five or 10 years I think it will, will just um, keep growing at that rate and will obviously play to their strength. People are getting uneasy. What this means for the rest of the world, and I think the parallels people people draw is like Germany, which you know people had big hopes after the First World War in 1929, Weimar Republic. It all looked like fantastic, and then Germany just used their advantage in in science, their advantage in technology, and used it against the good of the world. And that happened um, very quickly, right? It happened in a a less than 10-year period. From Germany was the model case for rebuilding Europe after this devastating first world war and 10 years later it was basically just eating up Europe in a, in a really nasty way so I think it doesn't mean that Ch- the Chinese um, mainland will work out the same way it might be completely different I'm just saying I feel this is the this is what's behind this this retracement of what what the America was hoping for China would be and uh, of course they are their own country and they can make up their own mind but I think this is the disappointment in people's eyes that I see Okay, so so let's
1: break that down a little bit. So I think um, the the first point about like uh, you know I, I I'm on a different page than uh, the U.S. kind of helped China build uh, the economy where it is today. Um, I think that might be a little bit overstatement because there is a lot still a lot of effort, like a lot of uh, things that need to be put in. You know, on China's side, either in terms of leadership, in terms of uh, you know entrepreneurs. Ah, uh, their work to get to where China is today. Um, but what is uh, fair is that the joint U.S. Ag- uh, agreement of having China join WTO and entering into the international market—that's a huge deal for China to play at a global scale and therefore global uh, grow the economy. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's not a one side trade, right? You know, a lot of the um, U.S. company do want to have a place where they can set up manufacturing uh, uh, environment uh, and taking advantage of lower cost laborers. so it just capitalism at work so you know putting the just you know kind of ideology you know on the side what's happening it's just free market it's just capitalism at work uh, that's what happened over the past you know 10 20 years um, now the second thing um, about the um, you know, the the, 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 uh, the the politics side, that part, um, I have different opinion, you know, I, I, I think um, democracy is definitely a good thing, um, but it's not the solution to all. Um, and I think when most people, you know, think about a fear of China, um, I think about it in the 90, 10, uh, 90 or 80, 20 rule, you know, to be generous, I think 80% of people kind of uh, are fearful because they don't know China. They have no knowledge, never been to China. And what they know about China, obviously, is through the media and through the movies, through um, the, the, the past um, uh, things that they, that, that they have heard about. Now, the 20% are, um, are the ones, you know, been to China, maybe like yourself, um, and also scholars that kind of point out, you know, with these two countries, uh, going to be the number one and number two in the global stage. You know what's going to happen. What's the dynamics going to be? Um, I, I, I have my own point of view. Um, but at the same time, you know, I would just say, uh, different country might have different uh, system in place. Yeah. You know, for the reason, given the cultural and given the history, um, uh, uh, that's why it's that's why it's there, and that's why it might have worked for them uh, for a period of time. Whether China will turn something, you know, kind of look in history, like Germany, uh, you know, after World War I uh, become, you know, what happened with World War II. Um, Based on what I know, uh, if you look at the history of China, um, it's not, it's not that, um, how do I say this? Um, It it shared a different type of nature um, in terms of uh, you know, aggression and, and, and expanding its uh, geo, geographic map. And I think Ray Dalio, he kind of pointed out a little bit in his book, um, and I think that's part, I'm not smart enough to articulate it, um, but, you know, it's deeply rooted in how China sees the world. It's not in the way that, you know, China sees the world, like we want to take over all the map, like all the territory in the world. Um this is more rooted in a way that China wanna have its place in the world that's being recognized and being respected um, you know, by the countries, um uh, fellow countries. Yeah, I like you know. I like I like book
0: yeah. a lot and I, I know we both agree on that. The one part I don't agree is is he's mm-hmm. he's too much of a China bull and I think he's 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 drunk the Kool-Aid a little much. Um but I I, I on the other hand I fully agree with you too. Um, an autocratic government, it doesn't have to be bad. It can be much better and the, the history of democracy and the way we see it as a one thing that solves it all, I think it's a lie. Um, it, what, it, what it does, it, it long-term reduces the risk, often at the, um, at the cost of reducing progress like we see in India. Right? India is way behind um, and it can't make up their mind about anything. So mm-hmm. it a democracy and it, you know especially if you don't have institutions for long running democracy i think it's it's kind of a almost like a virtual signaling on the right many times it's mm-hmm. the, you push out this value of democracy, but it's actually if it doesn't have the institutions if it doesn't have the borders if it doesn't have the people who know about China as you say, and not just from the movies but actually know by understanding and talking to people and that's a big part of what we want to do with this podcast. Mm-hmm. If, if people don't have this this opportunity, they are not able to participate well in their democracy because they're basically sheep, right? They're, they're not um, enlightened about what they're actually voting for. Even if you just vote for a person, in turn, this person might actually um, have an agenda on, on specific topics. So I think it's, yeah. it's, that's, that's very interesting. I think we agree on both sides. What I do feel, and that makes me a little crazy when I go to China, and I know this because I, I grew up in Germany with this, Germany has a huge superiority complex, and this is because they didn't have the role they wanted in life and they lost two wars. I don't know what it is, but when you go to Germany and you talk to people and they're honest and they have a couple of drinks, they will all bring out the superiority complex, which is kind of ugly, if you ask me. And mm. Germans are not the only ones. Japan has that, uh, China has that. There's a bunch of countries who have it, um, like India doesn't have it, for instance. It is, they, they have a superiority complex, but it's say, on a scale from one to 10, they may be at two. And Germany and China and Japan, they are closer to the 10 in terms of superiority complex. And I felt, well, this is great that it, it kind of pushes you forward. It's often, mm. you know, the, the motivation of doing things better, being better at manufacturing, doing everything perfect, which drives the economy to an extent. I think it's a very dangerous two-edged sword. And I feel we have that mm. in China. Wait, so just so I understand, so when you say superiority
1: complex, meaning that uh, you say, uh, your experience is China is at 10, quite like fairly high, meaning they feel yes. pretty good.
0: No, it's pretty, well, it's good for the economy. I always feel, because it kind of pushes you into this this sphere where you feel like, let's say Germans, they go um mm-hmm. Southern Europe or they go to Africa and they, they do, right. they, they're in this arrogant worldview of, the it needs to be like in Germany. Germany is the best country in the world. If the water doesn't run, this country sucks. Ah, I see. And Americans have that too, but it's more, you know, they're more, Playful, they're more open to other ideas. They, they behave like this, but they don't really mean it. In my point of view, they probably are the five in my scale. But I feel China and, and Japan, they're pretty high in that. And I always feel a good driver for economy, but really scary if the scale tips them. for whatever reason this country is really pissed, because then they're gonna be
1: really pissed. I see. So I, I actually have a really different point of view. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually think the scale for China is fairly low. I mean, compared with Germany or compared with Japan, I think there is deep-rooted insecurity um, in a lot of Chinese people. Um, not just about like what. Well, I mean, mostly is about what happened in China's history over the past 200 years. Right? China was like you know just fall behind, invaded many times, and uh, you know signed a lot of uh, you know unfair treaties uh, based on uh, uh, you know what we have learned. So that part, um, I think China is still kind of in the recovery phase, that um, that kind of seeded the insecurity uh, in the nation's psyche in a lot of ways. So that's for one. And and the second part is um, the just the, the, the pure pressure, the pure competition dynamic. Um, when you're living in a country that has, what, you know, 1.3 billion people or so, I mean just huge amount of um competition that you have to um, you have to go through at every step of your life right either it's getting to uh, a best college through Gaokao, the national uh, uh college exam where you have to compete with not like in the u s but you have to compete with hundreds thousands of other people to get to that one spot um it's 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 it's, it's it just kind of embedding you when you grow up in china so I don't think. Uh, I think most Chinese people, and you know, frankly, including myself, right, growing up in China, uh, we have this deep sense of insecurity. We don't feel like we are better than anybody, but we do feel like we have to. We have to work hard to get a place. Um, in this I, I world, I agree with you, but, right, but I feel like it's
0: the, the, the mirror of, of of the superiority complex is the insecurity. Again, they, they, they mm-hmm. both are the, the same thing of a different sides of one coin for me but it's, How it's so. i think we need more time to dive into this i feel this is really it's complicated because it's very it's very abstract it's a big generalization but i feel there's a lot behind it that drives um people's everyday life and their attitudes that nobody really talks about
1: mm. yeah i mean we can talk more about it like at the next call you know uh some other time offline as well but uh, I, I like yeah that. i like that idea
0: i have some quick questions prepared for mm-hmm. you um yeah. If you want uh, to answer them ideally just with a sentence or two that would be great. Okay, sounds um, good. What what do you think is your most contrarian view that you hold
1: in terms of investing
0: or uh, Sorry, can you say that again? In terms of investing or just No, anything, anything. Um, anything that you can share on the podcast.
1: Um most contrarian um oh the I mean I'll I'll start with investing then you know I think the activity investment activity between u s and China right now are overlooked um the act- business activity um is not going away, so whoever can unlock that and and help entrepreneur to start journey in both countries um you know will have a lot to gain, so that's one of our investment pieces. Okay.
0: -hmm. Going somewhere? Going back to China a little bit, but what's just for personal reasons? What's your favorite city in China? Shanghai. Okay. Can you tell us why? In a short, short
1: explanation. So Shanghai has uh, a lot of uh, activity in enterprise space, in the robotic space that we care about. Um, Plus, for me personally, you know, it's strategically located between Beijing and Shenzhen. So when you fly uh, to both places, take meetings. It's only two or three hours away both way. So uh, I like that a lot. Plus, you know, I mean, Shanghai has the best food, best view, and best everything. So it's definitely one of the, my favorite places uh, to stay in China.
0: If it can't be one of the big cities, what would be one of the smallest cities? Like just, I don't know, less than 10 million people. Uh, Xiamen.
1: Xiamen would be a great place to, to live. I don't know about to, uh, to work, though. But Xiamen, you know, is an island city in the south part of China, right next to Taiwan. We're really relaxed, a lot of seafood. Um, you know, I spent some time over there and I really uh, enjoy uh, uh, Xiamen
0: quite a lot. Okay, like uh, going going to a very different topic. Yeah. Records file um, prediction uh, 2038. Uh, Do he uh, eventually it was revised from two thousand forty five to two thousand thirty eight. I learned last week. Do you think the singularity is actually going to happen, or it's just um, someone you know drinking too much of a coolant? Well,
1: I mean, if if you put the time scale long enough, anything could happen, right? Um, But for the time points that you refer to, I kind of doubt it. Um, But you know, separate topic, but I do think humans are going to Mars. So one day, hopefully in my lifetime, in, in your lifetime, that, you know, we'll be able to make the trip and really kind of have human species live outside of the Earth. And I do think that's kind of a uh, near term, and that that's achievable.
0: Okay. Yeah. I always ask that um, to get a sense of where people stand, but I, it's something I'm personally very interested in. Do you think we live in a simulation? What is your gut say and do you feel like if if not will we start to simulate ourselves
1: at some point good question uh I don't think we're living in the simulation because um, it has a lot of characteristic that's similar to simulation but uh, but I think we live in the real world I mean with a lot of things that has consequences so um so to that to that regard uh, you know I, I you know the answer is no
0: do you think we will simulate ourselves? Because this is a big topic about AI, right? If you can create something very close to AGI, like a little bit of consciousness may be thrown in, you can kind of download that piece of, say, problem solving that you have in your brain, put it in an AI. It won't be a full human, but it will be part of like a, like a say it's it's your Chinese speaking uh, personality that you apply to Chinese philosophy, and you can put this in a, in a in a simulation and then run through a million different um um options out there and it will present you but it's not just because it's kind of a personalized AI so you you simulate solving this problem with the AI but also your own brain and then you just look at the results you think we're going to do this relatively quickly or that's too much science fiction
1: I I think that's definitely something exciting um I think it's achievable um and um, um I think probably like 10, 20 years, uh, probably that's the time scale, uh, t- time scale that we're looking at. Um, but one thing I would say though, um, like we probably not able to get the full autonomous AI um, uh, type of solution for a time being of 10, 20 years. It's always gonna be human in the loop um, to solve a problem. Either it's you know the, 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 scenario, the scenario that you described or for the um, enterprise company that. there. Um, so anyway, and
0: would so have been my next question. So one of the founders of GPT3, um, he kind of uh, made that, that argument that there is a good opportunity good chance um, and an opportunity that the GPT5, which is supposedly out in two years or less, um, is going to feel like AGI to pretty much everyone who tests it. Beeps um, will won't know how it thinks and we'll probably won't have a lot of feelings to share, but he felt like on a, on a purely Turing test and beyond level, we we will have trouble to distinguish it from from uh, an AGI. Do you think that's realistic, or GPT three is just a bunch of statistics and is never going to happen? I think that's
1: realistic, um, and I think for passing the Turing test, that's sufficient enough. Now um, there is something kind of deeper about just on the philosophy, and things man made is not going to be as hundred percent perfect as what happened in nature, right? Our consciousness and our brain are built by nature. And uh, there is just things about how complex our organism has to evolve to where we are now. Um, you know, I think humans, uh, either it's AI or anything that we have built, can, um, can get to maybe 80 percent, 90 percent of the complexity, um, or in terms of beauty of design of the product. But I just think that last five to 10 percent, you just never be able, to, we just never be able to fill the gap. Uh, against what what's been created in nature
0: yeah that's interesting. I feel there's so much to the human brain but but, yeah. but it kind of feels to me th- those are survival mechanisms right that we, we adopted them because they made us better at surviving and predicting the future when in turn is better than surviving so you're highly selected for the surviving obviously like I, I I feel a machine would be driven by the exact same um, survival mechanisms, right? So if we invented morality, we invented religion, and uh, we invented them because it made, a, made us better at surviving, I assume because otherwise religion wouldn't be around anymore, people would have um, gotten rid of it a long time ago. When I feel AI will go through the same pressures, which is a hyper speed, right? It could happen in, say, 10 years, but we had to go through the last, last 10,000 years And I feel AI will come up up with very similar conclusions that we have sooner or later, but it will be much faster at this. And there's obviously this big um, debate that once we have AI, you know, it will only look at us for a moment, but it will be 10 minutes later, it's already um, way past human AI. Do you think that's what's going to happen? Or no, this is going to take a long, long incremental path?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, And that is a good good statement. I don't know if we have built that environment yet, meaning uh, if you can create a artificial uh, environment or the eco- so, sort of ecosystem per se, right, similar to nature with the evolution, with the survival of the fitness, uh, then you kind of just let AI, that machine kind of evolve by themselves. Um, and then you can run that um, simulation and run that process um, just you know, for a long time or for a short amount of time, and see what comes out from the other end. Um, if that's the premise, then I think it's possible you can create uh, AI, either as algorithm, um, you know, like GTP, uh, sorry, yeah, GTP three or GTP five, that can um, get to as close to as human consciousness. Um, but my point, my my point of view previously is that I think. In, in the reason I cannot explain, and it's just kind of like, you know, from the philosophy uh, that I subscribe to, there's always that one to 2% that you cannot get to uh, the complete uh, nature-made consciousness. Uh, and then, you know, you can have conversation, you know, just like they, you, know, you and me talking, right? Maybe one day I will be replaced by AI, and which is, should be sufficient enough to have this conversation. Um, but I think all that. your
0: first meeting with the entrepreneurs will be run by AI. I promise you that in like five years from now.
1: Yeah, I think that 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 job can be replaced and will be replaced. Um, and uh, you know, for me, I'm looking forward to that for sure. Uh, although you know, definitely <laughs> yeah. will replace part of my job.
0: Circling back to entrepreneurs, that's my last question. We touched on okay. that earlier, but if you, if the insight you do have now, and uh, say you would would not do venture capital anymore, you're too bored. If you would do a couple of startups now, what would be areas you would be looking into? But as specific as you can, as you can share them. Um, yeah, so, so
1: this is a good question. So actually, uh, I might write a post uh, just in terms of uh, the startup that we request. Um, and we will kind of outline the concrete ideas that we'll be thinking about. So the, the way that I think about this is that, uh, again, to our earlier discussion, we invest in company from the point of view of partnership, just like co-founder. So except that we happen to write checks and we can write multiple checks. So if I were to start a company today, uh, which is equivalent of way to saying, you know, which companies that I think are promising, I would like I would, I would like to be a co-founder uh, in. So again, so in terms of high-level verticals, um, in turn ter- uh, like legal, uh, AI for legal. Compliance, and AI for healthcare, AI for manufacturing, and AI for like finance and fintech. And one of the idea I'm pretty excited about. I mean, just to give some concrete context around it. Um, so there was a lot of uh, human hours being uh being spent in terms of legal document review, and um, and you know filing forms and all of that. So that can be easily replaced by AI, but it cannot just be done by PhD. In uh, in computer science or statistics, it has to be paired with uh, somebody has domain expertise uh, in terms of what to build and how to solve it, uh, the problem. So I'm actually we're actually looking at a few companies um, in the space. Uh, and if I were not doing investing, you know, I might find a co-founder um, that has that domain expertise and really build it out because it's a large enough industry has billions of dollars spending. Um both from the uh, consumer consumer and also the business end, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, uh, you don't have an automated solution uh, you know for it. Um, so, and also one more thing I would add on the scale of b two b and b two c, this is the case that I'm more excited about b two c side because a lot of consumers are not really well educated by what type of forms to fill out um, in terms of the certain things that they want to do. They either hire a lawyer. Or they go to legal Zoom and figure it figure it out themselves. But a lot of um, I forgot the exact number. But like if you think about like 40 to 50 percent of a lot of legal actions or legal uh, things that consumer everyday people like us want to do, like fighting tickets, or you know taking somebody to a small claim court, or you know just kind of uh, avoid the spam call. All those things can be done in an automated way. Um, and uh, the, the market's huge. Uh, so I think there is a lot of opportunity uh, in that area for sure.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity. It's definitely something everyone wants to get rid of. Nobody wants to deal with forms and like small legal matters even. And if if yeah. I can do it, it would be fantastic. Yeah. On that positive note, thanks for doing this, Jay. That was awesome. Thanks for talking to me about China. I know this is a sensitive topic.
1: Oh, no, it's fun. It's great uh, chatting with you.
0: Thanks for your insight. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 拜拜